Today we're going to do a little compare and contrast between the self-serving sons of Zebedee, named James and John, and the self-sacrificing son of man, Jesus. Let's pray. God, our helper by our Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our minds, you would lead us into your truth, that we might better open up our hearts and our hands for the sake of Jesus Christ and Christ's mission in the world. Amen. All right, so we all familiar with the term jockeying for position? Yeah? All right, good. So it's this term originating in the horse racing world around the turn of the century, 1900. It means to maneuver or manipulate for one's own benefit. All right? Super important. So a few years ago, I'll illustrate. A few years ago, I was learning the benefits of jockeying for position firsthand. I was swimming in this ocean race. I did a couple of these uh, called the La Jolla Rough Water Swim. So I trained for about a year for this swim. Um, and I couldn't have been more ready. I was ready for this race. I showed up. There's hundreds of people in the race. Um, it's one of the kind of premier ocean swims in the country. And I was a little nervous the first time I was doing it. And so I was a little more than like put off by all the people on the beach that were jockeying for position at the start. So if you've ever seen a triathlon start, it's really similar. Um, it's just like bedlam with hundreds of people shoving their way, moving you out of the way, all trying to get to the front, all for the purpose of trying to gain an advantage. And so me being me personality-wise, I'm like, I'm not dealing with this. And I just went all the way to the back, all right? And so I just decided I was going to start at the very back of the pack. I'd make up some time in the water and just not worry about it. So the gun goes off. The frenzy begins. Now, look, I'm a former, I played water polo in college, right? Like, I'm used to eating elbows and having my nose broken and rearranged by a doctor or myself on my face. Like, this is a normal part of my years when I was younger. But this five to seven minutes at the beginning of this race was like... My water polo days had nothing on the number of elbows and feet that were flying in this event, right? People literally like punching and kicking me, clawing me, pulling on me, all for what? To go to pass, to try to get past one person to gain that type of tiny little advantage. Overall, I was like, I finished. I finally got out of that mess and it was all right. But I vowed that if I ever did it again, that at the start of the race, I was going to jockey for a much better position. I wasn't going to deal with the same thing again. So the next year, I decided to do this race one more time. After that, I wised up and haven't done it since. <laughs> uh, and this time, I was like, you know what? No more elbows or feet for breakfast. I'm, I'm not doing what I did last year. So I was determined to get out in front of the chaos. So when people started lining up, I just quickly got ran down there to be first and didn't have to like punch and claw my way to the front. I just walked down early. Um, and people started lining up, and I kind of just made sure I wiggled my way to the front. And right up to the front of the water's edge, the gun goes off. I successfully jockeyed for the best position I could possibly get, right? And it paid off. Great start. All this nice blue water in front of me, no feet and elbows for breakfast. It was great. I took multiple minutes off my time, um, which was awesome. So I start, this, this is what I thought of when I thought of today's scripture was this story. Like, we jockey for position in life all the time. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to get ahead, all right? We're trying to gain an advantage. And a lot, a lot of times, this serves us really well, like the example I just used, it served me really well. But what we're going to see in the scripture is that oftentimes when we jockey for position, we do so at the expense of other people. 
And this is going to be the problem that we're going to see in today's text. James and John, they've got this cool nickname, the Sons of Thunder. They're going to jockey for position for glory. One on Jesus' right hand and one on Jesus' left. Let's listen for it. Mark 10, 35 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. you see a, do you see, a, you see the problem already? Gosh, we could just stop right here and, and go home early. All right. Yeah, seriously. I should never say that because this group, everybody would follow you too. i the only one left in <laughs> yeah, seriously. All right. Oh, boy, we just derailed the scripture right there. Um, and he said to them, uh, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hands and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They replied, we are able. Another problem. <laughs> Then Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began uh, to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. It's more than likely, and this is going to make some sense, that the Apostle Peter is probably Mark's source for this story. Peter, James, and John were like the, what do you even call them? Like the, the earthly trifecta uh, of Jesus' disciples, right? They, they kind of comprised this inner circle. Uh, and of the three of them, almost every time, it's usually Peter that's recorded in Scripture as having said or done something foolish. So no wonder Peter remembers this story, right? Like, think about it. Finally, he must be so relieved for the first time. It's like somebody else is immortalized in the scriptural record as the one who's the fool. And for a change, it's not him. I'd remember this story too if I was Peter. And so it's the brothers, James and John, they're jockeying for position. They seem to deliberately exclude their buddy Peter from this conversation. Right? They get together, there's three of them, all of a sudden there's just two, the brothers approach Jesus, and where's Peter? He's just left out of this like, heavenly circle of trust. You know? um, like, if I were Peter, I'd remember this story too. And so we know the context, right? Jesus has been on the way to Jerusalem. It couldn't be more important. He's about to enter the city after this long journey, and three times Jesus has described this impending suffering and death and resurrection. And for the third time, the disciples' response is still just totally clueless, completely misguided. So we remember these, right? The first time uh, Jesus said that the Messiah was going to suffer and die, what did Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside. Just, just a picture, right? He must be grabbing Jesus by the arm, pulling him away from the other disciples. He's like, look, this, this can't happen, right? He's trying to persuade Jesus to be on the winning team. 
right? To be conquering, to take this path of conquering in a victory. The second time Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to be rejected, suffer, and die, the disciples debated behind Jesus' back, which one of them is the greatest? It turns out that none of them is the answer, right? And this is the third time. Jesus has now, for the third time, told them what's going to happen. And here we see probably the most audacious request in the entire gospel story. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Oh, gosh. When somebody asks you for a favor, this is the, probably the one thing you're going to learn today. All right? If you learn one thing, here it is. If somebody asks you a favor but they don't come out and say what it is, just say no. <laughs> Every single time. Okay? Don't listen to it. Don't even listen to what it is. Walk away because you know that something is wrong when somebody wants to ask you for something and they can't even do it. This is what we got here, right? Like, doesn't this sound like the request of a little child? When you know that a parent is going to say no to whatever it is you're asking for, you resort to asking for nothing by asking for everything. This is what's happening. Think about it. The brothers basically ask Jesus to sign a blank check. This is what they say. To give them whatever they asked for, no matter how ridiculous this request might be. So Jesus has been consistent with his messaging the whole time about what's going to happen when he reaches Jerusalem. Three times that we know of, how many times did he talk about this that wasn't recorded um, in the scripture? And clearly the disciples are suffering from some serious selective hearing. After all that has happened, they still seem to honestly believe that this kind of grandeur and glory awaits for them in Jerusalem when, they, when Jesus finally arrives to inherit his kingdom. They don't hear the stuff that Jesus has been saying. They just think, Messiahs cannot suffer and die. This is impossible. That's a dead Messiah is a failed one. They just really believe that Jesus is going to come into his glory when he hits the city of Jerusalem and enters, and enters into his kingdom. And then they're going to sit in the positions of honor and glory, one at his right hand and one at his left. So it's Jewish custom, the place of highest honor is at the center, followed by the right side and then the left side. Being brothers, I'm surprised that it doesn't, like Peter didn't record these two brothers duking it out for the one on the right side. Because that's the better position, right? How, did the, how are the brothers going to work that one out? It doesn't say. Like, I just know that my brother and I fought over a lot lesser stuff than this. Like, who's going to get the last cookie? Like, we'd go at it over that. And Peter doesn't say, like, that's the one disappointment here. Peter should have told us about this fight for the right hand. But anyway, that's for another time. So Jesus responds to James and John's request. He says that you guys have absolutely, you, don't, you know what you're talking about. You have no clue what you're asking for. These guys want all the benefits. They want all the glory. They want the accolades. They want the perks. They want all the things that are going to come with being celebrities in the kingdom of God. That's what they want. Think about it, right? They want to be celebrities in the kingdom of God. And they don't want to hear anything about the costs of actually living it. And so we should know right away there's a serious problem, right? All glory and no cost does not sound very much like Jesus, does it? And so this is what Jesus says. He speaks about living in God's kingdom as a cup and a baptism. These are his words. And so in the Old Testament, the cup was this symbol of something that was assigned or given by God. And so sometimes the cup could be good, like I thought about a steaming cup of delicious hot coffee on a cold morning, or yesterday when it was 85 degrees, a nice cup of cool water. Uh, but more often than not in the Bible, it actually symbolized judgment. 
So which for me would be more like a cup of V8 juice. <laughs> Jesus understood the cup of impending suffering. And this is super important. He understands the cup of impending suffering and death to be the will of God. This can't be overstated. And so Jesus wasn't just volunteering to go to Jerusalem. He was trying to tell James and John that he was fulfilling a role that was assigned to him by God that only he could fill. Nobody else could fill this role. And so baptism in the context is a little bit more complicated, I thought, when I was studying it. It seems to refer to kind of Jesus' baptism by John. I don't know if you remember this, but John was pretty surprised when Jesus wanted uh, to be baptized by him. Like, John wanted the roles to be reversed. John thought, wow, this guy should be baptizing me, not me baptizing him. But in baptism, Jesus is expressing his solidarity with the sinful humanity and this kind of noting this willingness to take this judgment upon himself. And so you put these two ideas together, the cup and the baptism, and Jesus seems to be trying to explain and tell James and John to ask them a question like, do you really believe that you were sent by God to suffer and die to redeem a sinful humanity? And what did James and John answer? They're like, yeah, we do. <laughs> like it shows you that they just, they don't understand what Jesus is asking them. They have no idea what they're talking about. And Jesus basically says, well, soon enough, you're going to understand these things. And later on, they would understand the cup and the baptism. Both were probably martyred for their faith later in their life. And so the rest of the disciples, of course, they catch wind of this discussion, what's going on. They're upset. Why are they upset? Because they weren't jockeying for position in Jesus' right. They're, they're left out. James and John are trying to get the courtside seats, and the other ten are like up in the nosebleeds, right? They don't like this. They're not interested. They want to be in on the good stuff, too. And so now we just know Jesus has this work cut out for him. It's not because the ten probably were any better or didn't want the same things. It's James and John beat them to it. And they're like, they just, beat, they just beat us to it. They're in the same place. They don't understand either. And I think, you know, Cameron, we were talking about this before, before worship started. I think what Mark wants us to realize is that we would, you know, we, it's so easy for us to look at James and John and say, I would have done it differently. And I really think what Mark is saying is, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have done it differently. You wouldn't have understood either. If these guys who were with Jesus 24-7 were having a hard time understanding then we're supposed to identify ourselves with these 12 disciples. So we know Jesus has his work cut out for him. He has to gather the 12 around and offer a corrective teaching. This is what Jesus does all the time with the disciples. And he wants to teach them how power and authority in the kingdom of God differs from what they understand about the world. And so here it is. The rulers of the world are tyrants who lord power over their subjects. And so here's a short list of a few of history's most, most like ruthless tyrants. Just this list ought to be enough. Stalin, Attila the Hun, Bloody Mary, we're not talking about the morning cocktail here, okay? Hitler, Mao Zedong, Mussolini, Ivan the Terrible, there's a list of some of the, I looked up the top 20 tyrants, these, those five make up, like, they're in the top 10. Uh, these tyrants paint a picture of power lorded over. If I should have done the math on this one if you total up the number of people that were responsible for losing their life at the hands of just those five individuals. Um, it's in the tens of millions, at least, maybe more. Yeah. 
Um, and so it paints a picture of what Jesus is talking about, right? That the world practices leadership from this model of dominance. It uses power and position to remain at the top. And so while tyrants rule with an iron fist, Jesus rejects this model of leadership. And this is really, really good. He says, it is not this way among you. This is a really important detail in here. This is the thing that surprised me the most when I studied it. Mark uses the present tense. Super important. Indicating that Jesus isn't just telling us how we're supposed to behave, but he's rather describing the way that things actually are in the kingdom of God and even currently among the disciples of that kingdom. So it's like, I read that and I was like, we're on to something here, right? We use power to dominate others and we're not just failing to live up when we do that. We're not just failing to live into some sort of ideal. We're actually removing ourselves. We're standing outside of, we're not participating in the kingdom of God when we do that. Because the kingdom of God, says Jesus, is present among us right now. This is really, really important. And so when we lord authority over others, we're actually standing outside of the kingdom of God. Because inside the kingdom, things work differently. Jesus says that greatness is service under, not power over. Service under, not power over. And he says that whoever wants to be first, whoever wants to win, James and John want to win, Right? If we're honest with ourselves, we probably want to win too. And Jesus says, if you want to win, you need to be the slave of all, the servant of all. Greatness is service under, not power over. And so, of course, the irony in the passage is that the great, uh, greatness belongs to the one that's not so great by the world's standards. I like the definition of service as this. This is how I'm defining it. I'm defining it as love made tangible, nice and simple. All right? And so, of course, this idea of a slave being first is absolutely absurd. Is it any more absurd than last week's teaching? A camel going through the eye of a needle? I think where Mark is going with this is that the desire for power and position actually kills our love of our neighbor. I think this is exactly where he wants us to go. It puts all the focus on ourselves and not the other, but love by nature is always focused on the other. This was what my, like, my wedding meditation for Luke and Samantha was on, right? This is what love is. Love is for another. It always is. And so what we need to remember here is that service isn't just this nice ideal to live up to. It's first and foremost the pattern of Jesus' own life. This is what the scripture says. It's the way of the Lord. For the Son of Man, it says, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So the language of ransom in Jesus' day is a bail paid to retrieve prisoners of war, slaves, or people in jail. So to ransom is to set free. So there's some healthy debate in this passage about what Jesus is setting us free from. And so some scholars I read said that it points us to this idea of substitutionary atonement. It's this fancy way of saying that Jesus has died in our place for our sins. And I don't find anything wrong with that. I like that idea. I think it's, we see it in other places in Scripture too. But the context of this passage says something to me a little bit different. 
And it seems to be that Jesus is freeing us from a condition that lords power over others. This is what this text is about. There isn't any mention, actually, of sin or this idea of substitutionary atonement from this text. But it's talking about power and how we use it. And Jesus is freeing us also. So if we have the, the against, we also have the for. That Jesus is freeing us for service by reminding us that love of God and love of neighbor is the driving virtue of the kingdom of God. That greatness is love for the world that expresses itself in service. And so last is first and first is last. I found a great story. We'll see if anybody remembers the story. It was, I wouldn't say it was a big sports story, but eh, I, I, I remember it. 2013, there was a Spanish runner named Ivan Fernandez Anaya. He showed the world that sometimes winning isn't everything. Anybody remember this story? This is incredible to hear this story. This is the picture, when I, when I read the story, it was like, this is the thing that gives us a tiny little glimpse into, I think, what the kingdom is, and I doubt this guy, this ever crossed this guy's mind, but it's, it's too good to pass up. So he's, in a, he's racing. He was trailing behind this Kenyan runner, Abel Mutai, who was like the bronze medal winner at the London Olympics, really good runner. Mutai, thinking he crossed the finish line, stopped. He slowed down, he stopped, and he thought he had won 10 meters short of the finish line. The Spanish crowd is screaming at this guy to continue. He doesn't speak Spanish. He has no idea what they're saying, and they're pointing, and they're yelling, and he's just standing there totally bewildered, thinking he's won, and wondering why everyone's yelling at him, not cheering. Right? This guy, uh, Ivan Anaya, he catches up to him, and he's just about to blow past him for the win. When he stops, he slows down, he puts his arm around Mutai, he points to the finish line, and he walks him and guides him across the finish line. Right? Mutai wins the race. And it's like the sports world was stunned when this happened. Like they're thinking, who does this? What type of person does this? Sports is all about the glory of winning. Like every, if anybody taught this, second place is what? The first loser, okay? <laughs> Unless you're a fan of the team, like people will be like, who was in the World Series last year? It was the Dodgers, right? Dodger fans are going to remember that, but everyone else is like, they've already forgotten it. <laughs> The Dodgers are long forgotten, except for L.A. fans. Second place, we're taught this from being little kids playing sports. Second place is the first loser. And so nobody remembers second place. And it's like, when this event happened, it was really quick. By like the next day, this guy, Ivan Fernandez and I, had like 500 friend requests on Facebook. Um, He like blew up. People were pretty impressed with this guy. Um, and when, when he was interviewed, this, this was exactly what he said. This is a quote. He said, I didn't deserve to win. He's like, I did what I had to do. He was the rightful winner. And so I saw him stopping. I knew that I wasn't going to pass him. This is what he said. And there's a great photo. I should have put it up there. Um, there's a photo of them that was quickly shared about 80, I think it was 81,000 times. It garnered like 136,000 likes, um, which is a lot. <laughs> Michael, is that... That's a lot, right? Yeah, see, even for Michael, that's, that's 136,000 likes. Um, I mean, I think I get like five likes when I put something somewhere. Um, so that sounds like a lot to me. Um, and there were 8,000 comments on the picture on his Facebook account. But this is the interesting thing, the thing I found fascinating. Not everybody was happy. 
Not everybody was happy with this guy, especially Ivan's coach. This is what Ivan's coach said. Contrast this to what he said. His coach said he wasted a good occasion. Right? Winning always makes you more of an athlete. You have to go out to win. This really made me think. This is James and John talking here. Can you hear it? You hear the comparison? This is James and John. Right? Waste the occasion. We're going to make the most of this. We're playing to win. We want the best seats. We want the glory and the accolades without the hard work. And it's like a lot of people felt this way. His coach just had the courage to come out and say it. But is winning really everything? Is it the only thing in sports or is it the only thing in life that really matters? Like I see something different. When I, when I read this story, I, I felt like I caught a glimpse of God's kingdom. Most people believe that the first shall be first, not last, right? Ivan Fernandez Anaya gives us a glimpse into the kingdom of God, and I'll bet he doesn't even know it. Jesus invites us to be great, just not at the expense of others. Jesus invites us to be ambitious, but ambitious for things that truly make us great. My hope is that we can reflect a bit on how we use our power and authority the ways in which we jockey for position to improve our place in the world. And think about it like this. Do we stand inside or outside the kingdom when it comes to how we use power? This might be my favorite thing that I've been thinking about. It's right there. When we use power and our authority that we have, do we stand inside the kingdom or out? Remember, outside, to lord it over, inside, to serve from underneath. Do we dominate others or do we serve them? Have we been ransomed or freed by Jesus to live a life of love expressed through service? It's perhaps Jesus' most radical reversal of worldly values. But we remember that Jesus himself has showed us the way forward. He's modeled it for us on the way to Jerusalem. Let's pray.